Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27. I'll read Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Moses, the great prophet, the great emancipator of, of, of Israel, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Pray with me briefly. Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I will say the first thing, obviously, now I feel way better than my voice sounds, so don't, don't be... I don't know, maybe it makes you nervous or you feel bad for me or something. I feel great. I just haven't gotten my voice back totally yet. We will make this work though with, uh, as long as Caleb is back there doing his job, this will be, this will work really well. Um, so let's go. Uh, so l- like most of you probably, uh, I have signed quite a few contracts in my life. I have, I, I was thinking about it. I've only signed two job contracts. I'm, one of those, like, I think very strange people compared to a lot around me. I've only had two jobs for the most part. I mean, I had odd jobs in high school and college, but I've only signed, I, I worked 10 years and 20 years for various places. And then I guess I did sign a contract here as well. So three, I've signed three contracts. Um, I've signed a whole bunch of financial contracts, though. I've signed a lot of consumer contracts. I've signed one marriage license in my life. And then a few church membership contracts. And signing my mortgage contract this last year, I heard the term wet signature for the first time. I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently it is. They said, we need a wet signature from you. And I'm like, that just means with ink because of digital, I suppose. That's the age we're in. Uh, Most contracts require one signature, very little hoopla. No ceremony for the most part. Mortgages require exactly about, I think I counted them up, seven million of these wet signatures. And that's, but that's usually done in an office. There's no, no one dresses up for the occasion. Marriage though is one covenant, the one that I've entered into, where the ceremony takes far more time and energy than the actual signing on the dotted line. In fact, the primary signature is not really a wet signature. It's not a dry. It's, it's oral. It comes with vows, right? But we spend a lot of time with that marriage ceremony. Most of my contracts have been completely transactional. I agree to offer a service for remuneration, or I agree to compensate someone else. That's where most of my contracts are. I compensate someone else for services rendered to me. It's very straightforward. Sometimes I notice there are penalties attached to the contract if I fail to live up to my side of the agreement. I suppose if I bothered to ever read the fine print, all of them would have penalties. I just don't really read them I've, most of the times. I mean, who has time for that? Seriously. Um, I, I did go to one wedding ceremony, though, where the father of the bride took the microphone. He didn't, like, storm the thing. It was part of the actual ceremony. He gets up, and he threatens his soon-to-be son-in-law physically 
if he does not live up to his vows. Yes, uh, everybody was looking just like you. Just like it was the most awkward, weird thing. We thought there was going to be a joke and everyone would laugh, but he wasn't joking and he walked off the stage. <laughs> it was very, very strange. Very strange. He was, he didn't give details as to what this physical violence would be. He left that up to our imagination. <laughs> this morning, we are going to read Israel's covenant ratification ceremony where the penalties for failure, they are not in the fine print. In fact, the recitation of the penalties makes up the bulk of the ceremony and the details are frightening and gory with nothing left to the imagination. And so if, if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a follower of Christ or you're listening, I, let, I, let's just get it right out there. This is going to be a strange passage, strange passage. But we are working our way through Deuteronomy and all scripture is inspired by God. That is our conviction and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is God's word for us and for you. It does tell us something about the holy nature of God, the God who created you. And so I would like for you to consider this very sober question. Am I ready to stand before a holy, all-powerful God who is completely just in his judgments? Christian, this passage is weird. It's weird for us too. It's, a, it's an ancient Near East covenant. But I would like for you to ask yourself, in your heart of hearts, do you believe that God relates to you in a purely transactional way? If you don't meet God's needs, then you will be punished. Or maybe some of you are the exact opposite. It's not transactional at all. Your behavior has nothing to do with how the Lord looks upon you. So listen to these two chapters and what we say about them. See if the Bible provides some more accurate and beneficial teaching, and then consider what your response will be this morning. Okay, we are back in Deuteronomy. It's Now, the last time I was up here, I did like an imprecatory psalm, Psalm 137. This is not... Todd just picks wacky texts to preach from. Uh, we are, we have got, it was a long time ago, before Advent even, when we were working our way through Deuteronomy, and we got up through chapter 26. So here we are now in Deuteronomy 27. We're going to take this to the end over the next few weeks. To recap, bring you back up to speed. This is the second giving of the law. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second law. It's given to the next generation of Israelites when they were gathered about the year 1400 BC, they have escaped slavery in Egypt. They are on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, ready to go in and take the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then again to Moses. The first four chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are like a travel log. It covers a 40-year span from Mount Sinai to where they currently sat ready to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. In chapter 5, Moses summons Israel and he speaks to them. And it's possible that what happened from chapter 5 all the way into basically where we'll get to today is one continuous speech of Moses, a covenant-making ceremony of sorts. In chapter 5, Moses repeats the Ten Commandments. 
that had been given at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier. He reminded the people of their unique privilege as the people of God. They had received the law from the Lord. What a great blessing that was. And then in chapter 6, Moses summarizes the law with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. With everything that they had, with everything they had, they were to keep the law foremost in their thoughts and their words and their actions and teach their children to do the same. And then after reminding the Israelites of their blessed status as the chosen people of God, a people uniquely loved by God, Moses emphasized to them that the Lord didn't love them because they were great shakes. He was not attaching his cart to their awesome horse. In fact, you get the impression it's the exact opposite. God picked really a pathetic people to make his name great, to make his name great. He picks a hard-hearted people. And it was the only reason that God loves them is because he loves them. And he made a promise. He made a promise to them. They had not earned their status as God's chosen people. It was granted to them by a promise. Promises made to Abraham in about about 400 years earlier or so. Shortly, to demonstrate just how pathetic they were, shortly after receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, 40 years earlier, they had the, the golden calf incident where the Israelites broke Almost everyone, if not all, of the Ten Commandments, just in one fell swoop. The ink, or the, I was going to say the ink wasn't dry, but whatever the chiseling, it hadn't even cooled off yet. As Moses is coming down the, the mountain, and they are, they have already violated all of them, it feels like. It provoked the Lord to great anger. Despite that, the Lord would love his people. He would be faithful to them, despite their faithlessness. And Moses then implored the people. So now we're back 40 years earlier. He implores them, okay, we had that golden calf incident. Don't do that again. Love the Lord your God. Respond with obedience to the love of God. Okay, we, it's obedience is a response to God's love. He tells the Israelites, it is not how you earn God's love. It's response to it. And then, He spends the next 16 chapters elaborating on that law, basically providing case law, specific instructions on how Israel was to behave as the chosen people of God. And that brings us to chapters 27 and chapters 28. Moses, he's finished his elaboration on the law, and he turns to a different aspect of the covenant, and it can be summarized in three C words, although they sound differently, so it doesn't alliterate, but you just give me a little credit. Ceremony, choreography, and curses. Ceremony, choreography, and curses, and that's how it breaks down. So let's read the first eight verses of chapter 27. This is about the ceremony. So Moses, the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal 
and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Okay, what did this mean to them? This is all really a key to Israel remembering, and it's how they're going to ratify the covenant. Find some large stones, write the law on them. And so they're, I, I can imagine the kids are out trying to find the biggest stone they can. And then they hear the next part, carry it up the hill. They're thinking, whoa, not quite so big, not quite so big. But it had to be big enough that they could get the law on it. Moses is prepping the people for when they enter the promised land. He gives them a ceremony for ratifying or renewing the covenant. Moses reminded them that they were about to enter a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and, and he said, just as the Lord God had promised, if, if Moses, probably thinking back 40 years earlier, he's at the burning bush, and God says, I'm going to take the people of Israel out of bondage, bondage in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses repeats that. God keeps his promises. Then he tells them, build an altar. Do it according to divine specifications. He says, uh, don't, don't use an iron chisel or anything like that. Find these stones, just build it and, and use that. And, and I suppose that, that indicated to Israel something, a lesson that they would learn the hard way over and over again is that when you come to the Lord in worship, you come on his terms, not on your own. Sincerity of heart while you're disobeying God matters not. What matters is that you obey. And so do it this way and write on the stones, the law. So the Israelites, they're going to enter the land, and at the first opportunity, when there's a little bit of safety, they're supposed to ratify the covenant by doing this. Now, they're entering the land, and it's a military invasion, so they can't do it right after they cross the Jordan River. If we were to read ahead, way ahead, into Joshua, it comes in Joshua chapter 8, and they've already fought a few battles, but it get, but there's a bit of a respite and that allows them to ratify the covenant according to what God tells them to do here. They were entering the land only because of the intervention of the Lord and his covenant with them. And as the people of God, the Lord had expectations of them. The ratification ceremony existed to help the people of Israel remember that fact. It anchored them to their past, a past that was centered on their emancipation as slaves in Egypt. They couldn't bring this about. It was done through mighty wonders and works. They hadn't hardly lifted a finger. They contributed virtually nothing but complaints and stubbornness all along the way. This was God and only God. They were absolutely 100% dependent on God. That anchored them to the past and it thrust them into the future where it would be no different. They had to be utterly and completely dependent upon the Lord. And then isn't it interesting that, that Moses tells them, write the law on these stones very plainly. And I take it because God wants to be understood by what he says. God, who is infinite and awesome and the creator and holy, 
We, on the other hand, are finite and created and sinful. God is able to communicate with us, and he's able to do it clearly. And he says, write them on the stones clearly. Don't do anything to get in the way of the communication of my commands. And this was a weird, this is a strange ceremony, but just wait, it gets weirder. It gets weirder as we go along. There is a lot of difference between us and ancient Near East Israel. And we're definitely going to see that over the next couple of weeks. But one thing that we do share in common with them is our utter dependence upon the Lord. We too are utterly and absolutely dependent upon the Lord. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. God did it for us, and we will do nothing in the future to maintain that salvation. We need to work at our our sanctification. We are instructed to work out our salvation. That is true. But even after we're instructed to work out our salvation, we are told by the Apostle Paul, it is God who works in us. We are always 100% completely dependent upon the Lord. We too have been given ceremonies to help us remember. We've been given baptism, which is, I think at one point in a sermon I did on what baptism, I compared it to piling up rocks because that's what the Israelites did. They piled up rocks to help them remember things. Baptism is kind of like that. We've been given the Lord's Supper. We'll be doing that here later today to remind us of where we came from and where we were going. And it is totally dependent upon the Lord every step of the way. We, we could probably also take from this too. This is another advertisement for the Bible reading plan. Um, God's a really good communicator. He has accommodated himself to us in a magnificent way without compromising his truth or his character at all. At all. So we should read his word. He wants to be read. He wants to be understood by what he says. And so one of the ways to do that is what we're doing right now. Hopefully we'll, we'll learn a few things about what was going on in Deuteronomy 27, 28. Hopefully we'll see, hey, this actually is for, for me. And, and then in other ways, the Bible studies that we do. So be involved with that, the Sunday school classes that we do, and our Bible read-through plan. Have a plan to be reading scripture and go with an anticipation that you are going to hear from the Lord and he can be understood. He can be understood. Okay, that's the start of the ceremony. This, the next part is really ceremony part two, but I'm calling it choreography because I had to have two C words. So let's read 20, 20, uh, verses 9 through 26 of chapter 27. And if you're wondering, am I really going to read all of chapter 28? No, I'm not. Um, but we will read all of this because it will propel us into chapter 28. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day... You have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. I guess they drew the short straw. They get the curse. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. 
and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. That should have been an easy one to say amen to. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. That's a pretty strange ceremony, isn't it? The location. They're supposed to go up to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And there's a valley in between the two hills where Shechem was. And now there's a, another place, Nablus, I think is the name of the, of the city there now. That was the site of Abraham's first altar when he entered Canaan. It was also the site of Jacob's well, Joseph's tomb. That's still yet to come. They're going to bury him there. Prominent in the region were what the Bible calls two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. And I, I, I say this all the time to Pacific Northwest people, but we're, we're living in like a really good picture of the new heavens and the new earth right now. It, the, <laughs> the Holy Land doesn't look anything like this place. So when you think mountain, don't think Mount Hood. Think a hill, a hill. Uh, you can go online, do a Google search of an image of what Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim look like. They, they rose to a level of roughly 3,000 feet above sea level, but it's not even as impressive looking as Powell Butte, to be honest. Uh, but they're hills, and, and, and you're going uphill on them for sure. They, they do have the appearance more of hills than of mountains. But there's these two hills, Ebal and Gerizim, and they're sitting there. And, and apparently, the Israelites were supposed to gather on either mountain according to their tribe. But the Levites stayed in the middle, in between these two hills. And then they, they, they perform this ceremony where the Levites are talking and all the people on the hill are listening and they're saying, Amen. And if you wanted to read ahead into Joshua 8, as I said before, the Levitical priests and the Ark of the Covenant, they remain in the valley between the two hills while they take it the people are up on the hillside, participating in this way, hillsides. What is prescribed is a sort of antiphonal call and response where the Levites prescribe 12 curses for certain behaviors. Why 12? We're not told, but I suspect one curse for each of the tribes, I suppose. Uh, there's 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a number of fullness. Um, so I guess that would be why it is. Each time the 12 tribes, though, said amen in response to a curse, they were agreeing to the details of the covenant. 
They're basically saying, I do to this. They were signing their names on the dotted line. They were to agree to all sorts of conditions of this covenant, the good and the bad. And as we'll see, there was, there was plenty of good, but in that ceremony, it really highlights the negative. Here, 12 curses are mentioned. Now, what the curses would be actually awaits all of chapter 28. They're just saying, cursed be, cursed be, cursed be. What happens when I'm cursed? Well, as I, nothing is left to the imagination. That's coming in the next chapter, which we'll look at. But th- this section describes 12 behaviors that are worthy of cursing, and it's interesting to see what was chosen. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, why not just do the Ten Commandments, right? Cursed be anyone who does not worship the Lord alone. Cursed be anyone who who builds an idol. Cursed be anyone who takes the Lord's name in vain. Cursed be anyone who doesn't uh, honor the Sabbath, and so on and so on, for all ten of them, right? You would almost expect that. Um, or maybe you're expecting, well, twelve. Maybe they map to the Ten Commandments. No, not really. They, they really don't. They cover six of the Ten Commandments. We find one involving idolatry. That's the second commandment. One forbidding, I take it, the theft of land. That's what happened when you moved uh, 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 some piece that told you where property boundaries were. You're stealing someone's inheritance of the land, basically. That would be the eighth commandment, don't steal. Four of them address different kinds of sexual sin. That's the seventh commandment. Two of them forbid murder. That's the sixth commandment. And then two involve justice for the disempowered and the weak of society. And that's not in the Ten Commandments, specifically. And then there's just the final command, obey all the law. Cursed be anyone who doesn't obey all the law. What's the rationale for these 12? I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you what I think. I've always got opinions. This is my opinion. Remember our context. Moses is with Israel, poised on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. They're ready to go in and take the land where they are going to be surrounded by pagan nations. Moses is, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling Israel what she needs to know and do in order to thrive and live up to her calling as God's chosen people. That's what the whole Pentateuch is about. He's getting them ready. They're going to take the law, the Pentateuch, in with them. Moses is staying behind. So he's, he's giving them what they need in order to survive and thrive as the called ones of God. What was their calling? Well, in Exodus chapter 19, God told them, He said, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Those, I think those 12 commands, then they'll be cursed if they don't obey them. They really represent the entirety of the law, but they're selected because Moses knew these would present problems for Israel. I mean, I said there were four commands having to do with sexual sin. Sexual temptations are always a problem. There's nothing new under the sun there. But when the pagan nations that surrounded them, they wrapped what was offensive, sexual sin, into civic and religious responsibility You were doing your duty as a citizen. You were doing an act of worship by engaging in what the Lord thinks is horrific sexual sin. They needed to be told, don't do these. Don't do these things. 
righteousness is not just demonstrated by what you avoid doing, but also by what you proactively do. Israel's God was supposed to be honored among the nations. Word was supposed to get out that justice in Israel is like no place on earth. There, they care for the disempowered and the disenfranchised of society, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And so twice in these curses, cursed be anyone who distorts this kind of justice because Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Moses knew that the righteousness of a nation and the perfections of that nation's God are demonstrated in how they treat the least of their society. And that's the same for us. The righteousness of our nation is demonstrated not by how we care for the most enabled and powerful, but by how we care for those who are disempowered. And so I guess I'd ask this, if Moses were writing this to us, what would he select? What would he choose? I mean, the Ten Commandments are are all there for us. We've been given the new commandment as the church of, I'm sorry, the new covenant as the church of Jesus Christ. We have an entire New Testament full of commands. What would the Lord pick out for us that we need to remember? What would he repeat to us? Because we have to pay special attention to them. That we would, what, what kind of sins might we be susceptible to in our particular Pacific Northwest 21st century context? Would they be the same things that Moses highlighted way back then? They might be. I mean, sexual sin is a big deal. It was a big deal back then. It's not a religious or a civic responsibility officially today, but boy, the temptations come in manners that when I was young, I wouldn't have even imagined. That's what we face today. We don't have to go looking for sexual sin. It comes after us. What would the Lord say to us? What would he pick out? Here's an interesting one. When the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. He had spent three years in Ephesus. It was kind of like a seminary, church planting, missionary hub. And they had gone over so much good theology, I'm sure. For three years, Paul is just pouring into them, pouring into them, pouring into them. And now he's saying, I'm never going to see you guys again. This is it. And, and so they gather together. And they want to hear from Paul. And Paul gives them a good charge. And then he says, remember these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I would have been sitting there, I'd been thinking, man, what's Paul going to say? We've heard him talk about Jesus before. I thought I knew all the sayings of Jesus already. This is going to be awesome. What is it? Something profound about the Trinity, the hypostatic union. Who knows? This is going to be great. But what is, what does Paul tell them? They're supposed to remember. Remember these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is better to give than to receive. And I got to be honest, if I was one of the Ephesian elders, I would have been like, that's it? You got to be kidding me. We've heard you say that every single day. That ain't no nothing. I want some profound theological insight. But for Paul, that's what he left them with. Maybe it'd be the same for us. A bunch of us are going to watch the Super Bowl today and the advertisements are going to be pounding into us all the things that we need. We didn't even know we needed until they came along with the good news of this commercial, right? Remember the words of the, I, it, it, 
We live in a consumer culture. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is better to give than to receive. Sometimes I think if I could just get a hold of that in my own life, I'd be way down the road of sanctification. What would the Lord highlight to us today? Let's look at Deuteronomy 28 now. Deuteronomy 28, here are the curses. Here are the curses. Now I tell my classes at the seminary, my Bible interpretation classes, my biblical theology classes, this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. If you want to understand the major and the minor prophets, everything they say is coming right off the, pa- the pages of chapter 28. I'm not saying you should go memorize it, but read it, because what you're going to find is a blueprint to the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, it, it's spelled out, like Israel's future is spelled out for us right here, the good and the bad. It is one of the strangest chapters in the entire Bible, but as I just said, I think it is one of the most important. It has to do with curses and blessing. That's our C word, but it starts with blessings. I couldn't think of a C word that starts with, that has to do with blessing. So curses and blessings. Now, curses and blessings. This is weird, except for that one strange wedding ceremony that I went to. You normally don't have curses invoked at a covenant signing ceremony. But this would not have been strange to the Israelite people. In fact, it would have been very familiar. In in grace, the entire structure of the Mosaic covenant was designed in the same way that most of the covenants of the ancient Near East were between a king and a people, or between a suzerain, which is the kind of theological term that we give, and his people, or a vassal. Ancient Near East covenant, or suzerain vassal treaty, and I think I've got a slide for this. Here's how most treaties of the ancient Near East functioned. Was there a slide? Oh, okay. There's not a slide. I'll tell you what was going to be on the slide. Pretend that I came up with really fancy graphics for this. Um, usually there was a preamble of sorts, a preamble. And it would basically just introduce usually the king, but in this case, God. And we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, I am the Lord God. Well, there, I do have one. Yeah, okay. I didn't do it. Obviously, somebody else did. Um, Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God. There's your preamble. God's about to talk. Listen, right? And then there would be a historical prologue. This would establish the reason for the relationship. It was a king, if it was a king who had conquered another people, that would look like, I am the king who crushed you like the bugs that you are, and now in great mercy I'm going to be kind to you and let you live as long as you do what I say. It, it would establish some basis for their relationship. And in Deuteronomy 5, 6, we find the same thing. I am the, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the basis for our relationship. I rescued you. And then there would be what we call stipulations. These are the requirements, the commands. This is what I want you to do. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 7 through 21, the Ten Commandments. We also find it in chapters 12 through 26, a whole bunch of commands that they're supposed to do. Then there would usually be some sort of provisions for continual reading. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 5. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are, as the Lord has commanded me. They were still there at that point. Chapter 31 of Deuteronomy also gives instructions 
for reading the law before the people every seven years at the Feast of Booze. So we have, we have here provision for continual reading. And then in these covenants, there was a list of witnesses. And again, every ancient Near East covenant for the most part was like this. The list of witnesses, exactly what you might expect, those who were present at the ratification of the treaty, who would be called upon to testify when the prosecuting attorneys would say, you haven't lived up to your part of the bargain. Let's bring in the witnesses. And that's what we find in Deuteronomy 4. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be, but will be utterly destroyed if you don't keep the covenant. And then there were blessings and curses. That was always followed. What always followed. Treaties like this are what we call conditional covenants. The people would, would receive good from the king if they did good, and they would receive bad things for bad behavior. And that's what we find in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It is like a blueprint for the rest of the Old Testament. But it begins with verse, with blessings. Verses 1 through 14, and I'm not going to read all of it, but you see, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do everything that he commands. Verse 3, blessed shall you be in the city and in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. It's almost like Dr. Seuss, right? I can eat them in a box. I can eat them with a fox. This in and out everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, you will be blessed. And it goes on like this. Let me make some observations. The Lord is so committed to blessing the people of Israel that Moses describes the blessings as overtaking the Israelites. As though if, if Israel didn't want to be blessed, they could try to want, run, they could try to hide, but the blessings would still come. That's how committed God is to blessing the people of Israel. They will overtake you. You cannot escape it. Second, the blessings are holistic. They are health and wealth, prosperity, sorts of blessings, exalted status among the nations, fruitfulness of everything that could possibly bear fruit, financial independence and success, political independence and prosperity. All Israel had to do was obey and not follow other gods, which is what Moses calls any disobedience to the law is following a different God. And we see this played out on the pages of the Old Testament. The absolute zenith of Israelite prosperity was during the reigns of David and Solomon. God was faithful to his promises. He's always faithful to his promises. And that shouldn't surprise us. Though I think sometimes in the ins and outs of 24-7 living, we act as though we don't really believe it or we get confused as to what God has promised to us. Perhaps there's some of you here this morning who are trying as hard as you can to be faithful, but your life circumstances are not what you envision them to be. And they definitely don't resemble anything like what the Lord promised Israel, prosperity. First, let me say this, don't give in and doubt. Don't doubt the Lord's promises because things are not working out the way that you desire. The problem is not with the Lord's inability to keep his promises, 
but it might lie in what you are expecting the Lord to do. Which brings me to another point. The holistic promises of health, wealth, and temporal material prosperity were made to Israel. They were not made to us. Despite what big-haired preachers say on the Heresy Channel, the Lord is under no obligation to bless you financially if you give to the church. We want you to give to the church. But he is under no obligation to bless you. I would be an absolute heretic if I said here, if you will give to us, the Lord will pay you back double, triple, whatever. It doesn't work that way. He's under no obligation to do that. The Lord is under no obligation to sustain your health just because you avoid adultery. The Lord is under no obligation to give you the family you always dreamed of just because you tried to honor your father and mother. Your relationship with the Lord is not transactional. It is not tit for tat. Israel on the other hand, could expect material prosperity if they obeyed because that's what God promised them. Those are old covenant promises made to Israel. But we are under a different covenant. And if the New Testament writers are to be be believed, we are under a better covenant with better promises. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What what kind of promises do we have in the new covenant? Better ones, eternal life, robust forgiveness of sins, adoption as children of God, being a co-heir with Jesus Christ, a promise that he will never ever leave or forsake us, help in temptation, a great comforter, We even have some of the tougher promises that run contrary to the prosperity promises of the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus promised that things will not necessarily go well for us. The persecution will come. That comes with following Jesus. And it's not in the fine print. It is there in big, bold, red letters. The New Covenant, our covenant, also tells us that things of the old covenant, including those great blessings of prosperity, those are just shadows compared to the heavenly reality. People who preach a prosperity gospel now, you will be, you will prosper now. I think they're guilty of actually underselling, not overselling. The Lord does promise holistic blessing. Blessing that will dwarf the blessings of the old covenant, but only in the new heavens and the new earth. The consummated kingdom. And Jesus said, you do not enter the kingdom apart from tribulation. That's what he told us to be ready for. Now, not all the blessings of the new covenant are in the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. But some of them are. If you're discouraged right now because things are not working out for you the way that you hoped, consider the faithfulness of God in saving you. Consider the fact you've been forgiven. Consider the fact that God looks on you as his child. And he may have in store for you some tough things now, but you've heard me say it over and over again. He will not be your debtor. God will not be your debtor. He will make everything right someday. 
hold fast to the promises of the new covenant. Which brings us to the curses. We've got to go fast here. And I'm not going to read them all. I'll let you read them. They, let me say this about them. Whereas the, bless, the blessings were general statements, the curses are detailed. How detailed? There are 14 verses of promised blessing for obedience. There are 54 verses of detailed curses for disobedience in chapter 28. Here's some observations. The curses are just as certain as the blessings were. The same language is used. They will overtake you. You can run, but you cannot hide. Moses is effectively saying here, there's no escaping, there's no outrunning them. You cannot outrun the judgment of God. It is impossible. Just like the blessings were holistic, the curses are holistic. Every aspect, aspect of life is affected. Israel would learn, you cannot compartmentalize your life. You can't have your Sabbath life and then your other six days of the week life. The God of Israel is the creator Lord who is God over every aspect of every life and he wants absolutely all of who you are. That's what he demanded of them. That's what he demands of us. That's what he demands of every person. He owns us. He created us. Nothing has changed in that regard. The curses escalate to the mother of all curses, exile. In Israel's life and thinking, there could be nothing worse. To be destroyed by another nation, taken captive, exiled to a distant land, away from the the ark, the tabernacle, the temple, away from Jerusalem. The details of these curses are troubling. They are explicit and they are terrifying. And the Old Testament records that it all happened precisely as the Lord said, down to the goriest detail. I mean, Moses says, if you disobey the law, then what's going to happen to you? There's going to be cannibalism where parents are eating their own children. Things are going to be so bad. And that all takes place. You can read about it in, in Second Kings. What can we learn? Well, something that's obvious but is deeply unpopular. Sin has consequences, dire consequences. God will judge sin. Some judgment is hardwired into the way that God made the world. You do bad things, bad things happen. Some judgment comes by direct, immediate intervention of the Lord. I don't know exactly how to differentiate those two at times, but God's on record throughout the Bible is doing that. I take it he still can do that. Some judgment Most judgment awaits the last day, but it will come. It will overtake us all. Just like the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 are just shadows of a future reality, unfortunately, so are the curses. Maybe some of you are thinking that bad things aren't happening to me now. So that line about sin having dire consequences, well, that can't really be true. Maybe you think that because judgment hasn't come, you've gotten away for it so long, you've you've gotten over. It's never going to come. Friend, if that's the way you're thinking, let me be perfectly frank with you. The Bible describes such thinking as foolishness. Listen to the words of Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If judgment, (laughs) I'll put it this way, if you are not reconciled to Christ and judgment has not come upon you yet, that is supposed to reveal to you how merciful God is. It is not supposed to communicate. Well, I guess God doesn't care or judgment ain't coming. Now, Paul wrote that Romans passage. But do you know where the Christian doctrine of hell comes from? What biblical teacher or author had more to say about hell than any other? Jesus. Warm, cuddly Jesus. Right? That's why we have a doctrine of hell. It's because of Jesus. I said the curses of the Mosaic Covenant were but shadows of eternal punishment. But Jesus Christ, the author of our doctrine of hell, the author of our doctrine of final judgment, he would not have you face that judgment if you are willing to repent. Jesus' offer the gospel that he was willing to take that judgment in your place if you will repent and believe that he is the resurrected king. I mean, recall from Deuteronomy, there was actually provision. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was willing to take the full measure of the curse of God so that we would not have to, so that you would not have to. So turn to Christ. The Lord wants you to. How do I know this? How do I know that even in the midst of I'm 54 verses of horrific cursing, how do I know that God did, does not desire that for anyone? Maybe something from Joshua here. This ceremony we read about was actually ratified in Joshua 8. After the battle of Jericho, after the battle of Ai, after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River miraculously, They saw the wonder of the awesomeness of God as the Jordan River parted for them and they walked across. They saw the wonder of the destruction of Jericho. They didn't have to do anything. It was a silly battle plan. March around and you scream and yell. And the walls come tumbling down, right? They saw that. They, they also saw that if they disobeyed the Lord, that they were not that great an army because they were defeated by just a few in the first battle of Ai. And then when they repented and there was judgment, they went and routed Ai because the Lord was fighting for them, not against them. Only after all of that is the ratification of the covenant that we read about. The instructions for in Deuteronomy was done in, in Joshua 8. But as they're doing that ceremony and they're saying, amen, amen, amen to all these curses, the memories are fresh and immediate. They are not passed down generationally. They were livid in their minds. They knew through their own personal experience what it was like to be blessed by the Lord and what it was like to be cursed. They were not dealing in hypotheticals or abstractions. The casualties from I were still painful. They still hurt. The plunder of their dominant victory, the blessing, was stacked behind them in the camp. They walked into the ratification of the covenant with eyes wide open, knowing what they were committed to. But isn't it cool that God gave them a taste of blessing and a taste of of misery so they could go in knowing what they were signing up for? Jesus asks us to follow him with open eyes. 
And Jesus is the giver of better promises. And it might not seem like that at the time. I mean, fruitfulness and prosperity with Moses compared to take up your cross and follow me, that's kind of a bummer. But that's what we do when we follow Jesus. Here's where we need the encouragement of others. Every member of this church, every single one of you, can give testimony to the kindness and faithfulness of Christ. Every single one of you. Jesus has never done you any wrong. He has saved you miraculously. So turn to Christ. And if you're already a Christ follower, as most here are, cling to those better promises. The story of Israel is really the story of Christ. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of it all. We, wake, we have worked our way through Deuteronomy 28 now, a, chain, a very strange chapter full of blessings and a lot of curses. The rest of the Old Testament tells the story of how Israel failed to keep the laws and the commands of God. And for us, we have to remember that God's moral compass, it hasn't changed. Nor has our flesh, nor has our finitude, nor has our ability or inability to keep the commands of God. And so we might ask as we get through this, knowing what the rest of the Old Testament holds, what hope is there for the people of God? How can the people of God ever keep the commands of God? And Deuteronomy gives us an answer to that question that is the basis for why every single one of us who love Jesus are here today. 3,400 years later, we have hope. Why? To find out the answer to that most important of questions, come back next week. All right, let me pray. Father in heaven, this was a, 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 such a strange chapter, and we are so used to living on this side of the cross that sometimes we forget how, how horrible judgment is because we've forgotten it. And Lord, that is a grace in and of itself that we need not fear judgment. But Lord, we should not confuse the lack of judgment that is coming to us with indifference to the choices that people make. Those who have been reconciled to you already and the choices and, and those who have not. Father in heaven, grant us Grant us, we pray, eyes to see, and hearts to believe and cling to these better promises that come with Jesus. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.